0: Uh, and we have a lot to cover today, but the, uh, today we cover the crucifixion and next Thursday we cover the resurrection. You can't get two more important Thursdays in your life than that. Uh, if there are two important things about Jesus Christ we need to know, besides the fact that he was born of a virgin and he is truly God of God and light of light, it is that he died for our, us on the cross and he was raised from the grave on the third day. We're going to look at those two things today and next week and then, as was mentioned, uh, next year we're going to be looking at First and Second Peter, which are absolutely marvelous letters. First Peter is just one of my all-time favorites, and uh, we'll be back in the epistles, looking at the implications of the cross of the resurrection uh, for us today as those who are strangers and aliens uh, in a fallen world, as Peter said. So uh, we, we have a lot to look forward to next year as well. Well, let's turn to Mark chapter 15, and we concluded last week with Rocky, I suppose, at verse 15. And uh, we'll pick up now with verse 16. And I'm going to look at this in four sections. Uh, we're going to look, first of all, at verses 16 through 20. We're going to see uh, four things here. But the first of all, Jesus was humiliated for us. And I want us to see how uh, Mark and the other uh, gospel writers re- faithful record the physical sufferings of Jesus before he died. And there's a reason for that. His humiliation is a part of his suffering it's a part of what's important to us. It actually happened as a historical event. You'll notice uh, as we read the account this morning of the, the sufferings of Jesus Christ, including his death on the cross, that there's a certain restraint and modesty about it. Uh, unlike, for example, the, the film that came out called The Passion. Was it last year or year before? Uh, and uh, was very graphic, very violent, and very gruesome. And, of course, uh, the crucifixion is... But a crucifixion is is so violent and so cruel that most uh, of those who are in uh, the upper uh, uh, strata uh, of society would not even discuss it because it was uh, it'd be kind of like someone getting up this morning and telling us about your trip to the to see uh, Philip Workman uh, executed you know this past week uh, tell us all about it exactly where they put the needles in and what were the expressions on his face you just go oh, you know it just gross me out. Well, crucifixion was far grosser than that. Cicero, in fact, said about crucifixion, he said, even the mere word cross must remain far, not only from the lips of the citizens of Rome, but also from their thoughts, their eyes and their ears. They must not even discuss it. They must not see it. They must not hear of it. So in polite society, you just don't discuss those things. And you'll find that the gospel writers do discuss it, but with a certain level of restraint. Because the fact is, everybody knew how gruesome uh, a crucifixion was. Cicero elsewhere said that crucifixion is the grossest, cruelest, most hideous manner of execution. Uh, Josephus, the first century historian, said it's the most wretched of all ways of dying. cannot imagine a way to die worse than this. So you will see enough to let us know this really happened. We'll get enough of the details to know that Jesus suffered on our behalf, but we're not going into gross, uh, exquisite detail of everything that happens. That's not what the gospel writers are trying to do. They're just trying to let us know this really happened uh, to our Savior. And there is a lot of discussion uh, in the world and even in North America about whether these things actually happen or not. We'll get into that in a moment. But the Bible makes it very clear this was a historical event. This one who has died of a virgin, who lived a perfect life, who taught and demonstrated love consistently every day, every moment of his life, uh, was cruelly put to death. Well, Let's look first of all at his humiliation and its meaning for us in verses 16 through 20. This is chapter 15, verses 16 through 20. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. Well, let's look at just the expressions in these five verses. You see them listed there on your handouts. The soldiers led Jesus away. And you'll notice the very last comment. Then they led him out to crucify him. Here is part of his humiliation. Jesus, who is the leader of all leaders, the leader of all time, the leader of the universe. He created it. He was made for his glory. He rules over it. They're leading him. So in his humiliation, he is being led by very sinful human beings. You'll notice also that they called together the whole company of soldiers. Let's all see this together. It's not only humiliating, but let's humiliate him before uh, the whole um, cohort of soldiers. A cohort of soldiers was uh, 600. You know, there were 6,000 in a legion, 10 cohorts in a legion. And so 600 soldiers, let's bring the whole cohort out and uh, let's have fun with this Jesus. Then you'll notice several things they did to him. They put a purple robe on him and a crown of thorns, and they cried out, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they spit on him. Uh, This was to mock, of course, the way that you would indeed greet a a vassal king that would be a subordinate king, kind of like, you know, Herod the Great. He was under Caesar. He was a subordinate king, Caesar Augustus. So. Uh, the way in which you would greet a vassal king uh, would be that you, you would bow uh, and he he would be wearing a crown and he would be wearing purple robes. And uh, you might even, if you got the opportunity, uh, kiss his hand or if you were family, you might be able to kiss his face. And you would certainly say, uh, always Kaiser, you know, hail Caesar or hail whoever it is you're you're addressing. And here they just go through all the motions that were typical in the first century to acknowledge a vassal king, and they do it all in mocking style. They're just making the most of this. Uh, they, these soldiers, uh, most scholars suspect, were probably Syrians the, uh, who, were the, uh, who were known to be part of this cohort and this legion that was in Jerusalem to guard it. Uh, they, they would have taken special delight in um, probably mocking and humiliating uh, a Jewish person who was nabbed by the Romans. Uh, it's just an ugly, ugly scene. Instead of kissing him, of course, they spit on him. They hit him. They strike him over and over again. And after they had finished all their mocking, uh, you see that they then led him out to be crucified in verse 20. Uh, now, you'll notice, of course, that in or we have noticed in Mark's gospel that Jesus predicts this over and over again. In fact, in, we saw that he predicts it with his disciples after the high confession of Peter. In chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, he says, I'm going to be rejected by the, the priests and the, the, the uh, teachers of the law, and I'm, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be crucified. He predicted all of this, which is to lead us to the point, why did he do this? What is the so what of this? And first of all, I want us to know, he just loved us greatly. And that's the reason this is here, to show us how much The Lord Jesus Christ loved us. He knew it was going to happen. He predicted it, and then he went through it. And he went through it without a word because he was fulfilling his purpose. His purpose was to love you. He was humiliated so that your shame and humiliation would be taken away. It's almost impossible for us to imagine what life will be like without humiliation because we are always humiliated in one degree or another. Some of us can remember moments when we were massively humiliated. And those have kind of become the legends of our lives. But every day we're a sinner and we know it. We make mistakes every day. And so we're always humbled every day. And so it's hard for us to imagine what it must be like not to be humiliated. But one day you're going to know that. That's what Jesus came to do is to remove all of your humiliation. No more shame. No more humiliation. And so he underwent it for us. And he's removing what, what he undertook. He removes That's the reason it's so important for us to see what he did so that we know what's removed from our lives. And humiliation is to be absolutely removed from your life. Now, that changes the way that the attitude that we have in the midst of humiliation. Yes, we're being humiliated. Yes, we're being humbled because we are sinners. It is humiliating. And yet we know in our hearts we're destined for a day of great glory and no shame. And so our hearts are lifted up, even in the midst of all of it. As Luther says, sin boldly. You know, you're you're going places. You're going to end up, this thing's going to turn out all right. Why? Because Jesus physically faced all the humiliation that we deserved. We should have been mocked. We're claiming to be followers of the Son of God. And look at us. Look at the things we thought about before we even got here this morning. Look at the things we said yesterday. Look at the things we've done this week already. It's not even Sunday. And we should be mocked. We should be humiliated. But Jesus was humiliated for us. That's the reason that it's so crucial for us to deal with the historicity of his humiliation. And the historicity of his crucifixion. I told our congregation on Sunday that I was up visiting my daughter in Boston. Uh, she's in graduate school. And uh, uh, on the weekend, we went to Newburyport. How many of you have been in Newburyport, Massachusetts? Yeah, just a lovely old fishing town in New England. It's just the quintessential New England. It's absolutely gorgeous. If you want to see what old New England is like, go to Newburyport, north of Boston, about 40 minutes. And uh, the reason I wanted to go there was because I wanted to see the place where the bones of the greatest evangelist in the history of the English language was buried. And that's uh, George Whitfield. George Whitfield traveled the ocean 13 times preaching the gospel to so thousands of thousands of people at a time and he was up at Newburyport at the age of 56 my age and uh, he died of consumption he preached that night because the people wouldn't let him go to bed they wanted to hear him preach one more time so he came out in his bed clothes, held a candle stood on the stairs up to his apartment in Newburyport and preached until the crowds would finally go home I guess maybe he pulled out a bad sermon or something to get, get rid of them and uh And he went to bed that night and died. He just coughed his lungs out. But he was buried right there in Newburyport at First Presbyterian Church. So I wanted to see the place. Well, it's a lovely old uh, Puritan colonial uh, wood frame uh, church. Just delightful. Uh, And and fortunately, it was open on Saturday. But what was interesting uh, is the reason it was open. They were having a uh, literary conference. Uh, You know, sometimes folks who are in the secular Christian tradition, those who have denied the reality of the resurrection and the, and the meaning of the atonement and the, the uh, infallibility of the Word of God, they, 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 they put on literary conferences. They, they don't know quite else what to do. So the title, I mean, it really, it really is a picture of a church that's lost its mission. It does not know what it's supposed to do. So let's put on a, fe- a literary festival is what it was. And they were in cooperation with the Unitarian Universalists, who were, you know, they were all in the same literary festival just down the street, and they had an even a more lovely Puritan old building. It's just amazing that Unitarians end up with that. But anyway, uh, the, the, it was open because of this festival. And the irony is, I'm going in to see the very place where one of my all-time heroes is buried, and uh, there's a huge a memorial in white stone over to the to the this side of the pulpit that reminds us of the extraordinary eloquence and power of this man's preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, the next seminar to be held in this literary festival is entitled, History as Fable. Now think about that just a moment. Is this not ironic? I'm in one of the most historic American colonial churches, remembering the literary, the, the literal history of the greatest evangelists who ever set foot on this turf in this country. And we're going to think of history as fable. They deal with the gospel the same way. And they like to call it metaphor, that the resurrection is a nice metaphor. And it really doesn't matter whether we had a historical resurrection or historical crucifixion or whether we have a metaphor, because they say in churches like that one, that it really doesn't make any difference that we're left with the same idea, which is kind of like Walt Disney and, and the Tooth Fairy and Santa Claus. It just kind of lifts you up. It gives you a little lilt in your step. Brothers, it makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world because what Jesus literally suffered, we're literally delivered from. And so if you're metaphorically, if He metaphorically existed, then you have a metaphorical delivery, which is no delivery at all in case you've looked under your pillow lately when you lose a tooth. And that's how much difference the resurrection makes if it's a metaphor. It makes as much difference as you putting a tooth under your pillow tonight. Some of you are putting them out a little faster than you expected, too. <laughs> and if that tooth doesn't come back in your mouth, then that's as much as the resurrection means to you. And that's what it means for those who say it's a metaphor. Uh, this, this literal suffering of Jesus makes all the literal difference to us in the world. And here, here's an example. If Someone says to you, you know, it doesn't make any difference whether Jesus literally went through all this suffering or not. Think of how our Jewish friends feel when Ahmadinejad says that the Holocaust didn't really happen. And they're thinking of grandparents and parents and rabbis and the righteous Gentile who suffered with them. They thinking, oh, so those people's lives didn't really, they weren't really given up uh, suffering. Oh, well, how's that feel? How would it feel to you if someone says, you know, Iwo Jima? Ah, didn't really happen. And some of you have relatives who were in Iwo Jima. And you say, what? What do you mean it didn't happen? You're ready to fight. What, what if someone says, you know, Beaches of Normandy? Oh, that's just a story. That's just a legend to kind of encourage us in our patriotism. You're ready to fight, someone who says that. And that's exactly the way I feel when someone says it doesn't matter whether Jesus died on the cross literally or was raised from the dead. I want to fight. You're talking about someone who with every with every whiplash on his back loved me. With every insult he endured, he did it because he loved me. With every blow of the hammer on those nails in his feet and his hands, he did it because he loved you. With every agonizing breath he drew just to live long enough to get out the seven last words and to triumph over evil, he did it because he loved you. And his humiliation was for one reason, because he loved you, and he wanted to take away your humiliation. He was humiliated for you. That's what difference it makes, and that's the reason the church ought to rise up in holy indignation when those who call themselves Christians want to make what Jesus did for us some sort of metaphor and put it up there with Disney World and all the rest. So he died for us. He suffered for us, and he loved us greatly. Now, notice, secondly, what difference it makes. that He set an example for us. The reason it's so important is that this is exactly how we're to face the sufferings in our own lives. This is how we're to face the insults in our own day. And if he did it metaphorically, well, I suppose you can do it metaphorically, too. You can tell someone to go to hell and think, you know, oh, well, that was just a metaphor. You know, I didn't really mean it. And you end up, you know, you end up denying the, the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Leave your finger there in Mark 15. We're for sure coming back. But turn toward the the back of your Bibles in first Peter, where we're going to be next year. Uh, And let's look at just a few verses. This is page 2019. 2019. And uh, look with me at what uh, Peter says about the suffering of Jesus and what difference it makes to us. Here's where he's talking about slaves who we know in the first century were mistreated. They weren't mistreated as badly as the slaves were here uh, in the 19th and, and 18th centuries, but they, they were mistreated. And he says to them uh, in verse 18 of chapter 2, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. And that's quite a statement. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. What? Why? Well, verse 19, for it is commendable If a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. In fact, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and oversee of your souls. Gentlemen, I've thought this thought a number of times. And I don't mean this in any way to bring up painful things or in any way to be disrespectful. But when I look at the great evils in our own country with regard to slavery, and especially in this case because it was race-based, which it was not in the first century, but ours was race-based. I mean, it just had so many evils in it. There was no manumission to amount to anything, and it was brutal. Uh, and, and you look at all that, and you, you don't see anything but just evil and sadness and bitterness, and we still experience the uh, the outworkings of it. But maybe this is the optimist in me, but I, I look at a text like this one in First Peter, and I look at those centuries, and I think, you know, what was God doing there? What was the purpose of all this and i don't know all the purposes i know ultimately everything is to glorify him but one thing that i have experienced i have to say is in just reading history uh, african-american history and history of slavery what you you find coming out of there is some of the greatest music about hope and about trusting god and about a longing for heaven and and about loving him in the midst of very difficult circumstances, you just think about some of the songs, some of the, the spirituals that have come out of that experience. And what you had laid out for us is First Peter chapter two. It's it's walking in the steps of Jesus. I'm not I, in no way am I trying to ennoble any sinner. I mean, slaves and masters were both sinners. But what what it calls out of us in the midst of our worst times. Out of those who really knew Jesus Christ, it calls out that song of glory through suffering. And that's, that's what Jesus is showing us here. He is demonstrating something to us in his, in his abject humiliation, stripped, uh, mocked, insulted, beat, mistreated, unjustly. He is demonstrating something of the trusting son of his father in heaven. And you have to see here, it's it's a beautiful song that comes out in this humiliation of Jesus Christ. And when you're humiliated, especially when it's unjustly, you know, our first reaction is to say, no, what do do you think you are or do you know who you're messing with? Instead of realizing, you know what? Praise God. What the Bible says of me is that now I have taken on the cloak of the prophet's. Because they were, pro- they were persecuted before me, said Jesus. And I'm walking in their steps. And even more beautifully, I'm walking in the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is very few people who actually get that vision, but that's what reality is. So when you are humiliated, especially unjustly, what you want to do is, is to say, thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. I get to be humiliated because of you. And And it comes out especially when because of your relationship with jesus christ or your belief in jesus christ or your christian ethic or whatever it is you get humiliated you are commanded to take great delight in that because you are walking in the steps of your faithful savior who showed us how to do it so the so what on this is very clear we we learn how greatly we are loved and we we learn how to live life in the midst of humiliating circumstances and especially when they're unjustly perpetrated against us Now, let's look at verses 21 through 32, and we're going to see that Jesus was crucified for us. His crucifixion, not just his humiliation in general, but his crucifixion in particular has profound meanings for us. Let's look at it, beginning with verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Jesus was crucified for us. The first thing we notice, he secured many witnesses for us. You'll notice it throughout the text. There are people there who actually saw it, who are faithful witnesses. And the way we know about all of these things is by eyewitness testimony. People who actually saw it. Now, one of them in particular is very interesting a certain man named Cyrene from Cyrene named Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And if you look in Romans 16:13, you'll find a man being greeted in the, among the Roman Christians named Rufus. Now we don't know for sure this is the same one, but it does, seem, it does seem likely. And the reason is, you may remember, that Mark's gospel is clearly written to a Roman audience, a Latin audience. Because he explains certain Aramaic terms uh, that obviously would have to be explained to someone who is not familiar with Jerusalem and Israel and some uh, Aramaic terms. And so he's he's Mark on occasion will translate certain things for his uh, his audience. And so it seems very clear that he is speaking to Roman Christians. We also know that Mark was in Rome. He was certainly there to assist the Apostle Paul on several occasions. And so we have believed all along. He is writing to a Roman audience who is facing sufferings from the government because of Christians and who are being marginalized and humiliated. And so he is writing to encourage them. Don't you realize this is exactly what Christians go through? Because this is what Christ went through. Get on with it. Be a good sufferer. Be a man who knows how to be humiliated with joy because of the confidence that we have in Christ. And he says, if you doubt what I'm telling you, why don't you just ask old Deacon Rufus over there? He was there. He saw the whole thing. He, his daddy helped carry the cross. He'll tell you about it. So Mark is appealing to eyewitnesses. And you'll notice this throughout Uh, the life of the apostles, they're saying, look, if any of you had questions, there are 500 people that saw Jesus uh, after He was raised from the dead. Don't just listen to me. Ask anybody you want to. There are plenty of eyewitnesses. So this is of great encouragement to us and great moments to us because in apologetics, in the defense of the faith, uh, it is very clear that this was not done in a corner. It was not some myth or dream or wishful thinking. It was something that was Verified by hundreds of people, including good old Rufus there in the Roman church. So Jesus all along, what he did was in public. He was shamed publicly. But because of that, he was also witnessed publicly by many, many people. Secondly, in his crucifixion, he experienced the full agony of crucifixion for us. And this is demonstrated in a number of ways. Even the name Golgotha, the place of the skull. How gruesome is that? A place that we know was used for executions. And notice that when they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, he did not take it. Now, why not? It wasn't because it tasted bad. Uh, what was wine mixed with myrrh? Well, myrrh uh, it, it was known as one of the narcotics of their own day. And it was one of the better ones they could find. So what they would do oftentimes for those who were being crucified since it was so agonizingly painful, just uh, you know, take a, a kidney stone and, uh, you know, a root canal <laughs> and you just add a and childbirth. I'm sure you remember what that was like. And all these things that are very painful, you know, hit your, your thumb with a, a hammer. Take all those very painful experiences you've ever had. Just add them all up. And Jesus was having all of them at the same time. So it'd be very natural, wouldn't it, that he'd want to take a little uh, uh, wine with myrrh. Uh, when I was teaching in here just a few years ago, I started to started to sweat, you know, and and my back started hurting. I thought, gosh, my back is really uncomfortable <laughs> And it started it was it started about this time of the morning, you know, right around seven o'clock and I was still teaching, my back started hurting. I said, What in the world's wrong with me? And I thought I'd really you know, slipped a disc or something and by the time I got through I could barely get down and Bill Weber comes up and says, You're not looking too good and I said, I ain't feeling too good either and he says he, and he says, where's the pain? And he said, I bet you've got a kidney stone. Well, sure enough, that's exactly what I had. By the time I got to the hospital, I was beside myself. I mean, I just, <laughs> you know, just and I couldn't stay still. And you know, you can't lie down. You know, you're going to throw up or you're going to, you know, whatever you're going to have to do. It's just, you can't, you know, you can't get comfortable. It's just all. How many of you have had a kidney stone? Yeah, it's awful, isn't it? Yeah, those women who think they had something with childbirth, man, they don't know what it, you know, it's like. And, uh, woo! So, uh, so I get into the emergency room and they uh, they give me a little diluted, you know, and they gave me some and I said, "Hit me again." <laughs> so she said uh, she checked with the doctor, yes sir. So she, you know, and I said I said, "Hit me again." <laughs> she hit me three times before I finally got any relief, you know, knocked out. And I'm sitting here thinking of Jesus, you know, and he didn't even take the first shot. And that's hard for me to imagine. I was, I was completely almost out of my mind with pain. And I was begging for the narcotic. Jesus didn't even take a sip. Why? Well, the, okay, this is speculative, but let's just think it through for just a moment. Why did he deny was he Was he just a pure ascetic? Was he, was he masochistic? What, what was his problem? No, Jesus came to die and to suffer for us and to do it with a clear mind. And we wouldn't have had those seven last words if Jesus, in all of His pain and agony, were, we never would have heard, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. We never would have heard, into Thy hands I commend My Spirit. We never would have heard, it is finished. We never would have heard those gracious words that Jesus spoke because he wanted to keep his mind clear to minister to us in the midst of his suffering. This is immense love, brethren. It is impossible for any preacher to proclaim it adequately. But Jesus denies the narcotic and he denies the wine so that he can suffer for us, so that it has every aspect of benefit it's meant to have for us. Thirdly, you'll notice that he fulfilled the scriptures for us. Uh, if you just, uh, once again, leave your finger in Mark chapter 15 and turn over to Psalm 22. That's page 824 in your Bible. Look with me at Psalm 22 and let's see how he fulfilled the scriptures. Uh, we can just look at a few verses here in this psalm. Uh, psalm of David, who's describing, you know, in some ways, his own suffering. But it, it ends up being the, the psalm of the suffering. Son of David, when he's on the cross. For example, Psalm 22, verse 1 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and am not silent. We realize now this is what Jesus was praying. This is what was coming to his mind. He knew the Psalms. He had studied them. And he was the son of David. And he's crying out with the same song. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my groaning? It's been, been very difficult for some people to explain this. Here's the very second person of the Trinity. How he, can he say he's been forsaken by God? Well, what's ironic is in the very verse itself, David says, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Calls him his God, his personal God. And yet he feels forsaken. And Jesus, that happens in suffering, doesn't it? My God, why have you done this to me? My God, why am I going through this? My God, don't you care? That's that's language of a suffering saint. You feel the distance and yet you call him your God. And then that's a fulfillment of of Scripture. Look down at verse 7. David says, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Is this not the exact language that we just saw in Mark chapter 15, verse 8, quoting those who mock him? He trusts in the Lord; let the Lord rescue him; let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Is this not a complete fulfillment of prophecy? As the passersby come by, and say, "He says he can save others like it. Why did not he save himself? Why don't you come down from there? Why don't you rescue yourself?" And David says he's been mocked in the same way. Look at verse 15. David says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Does this not sound exactly like the sufferings of Jesus Christ? Look at verse 16. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. My stars. Precise prophecy. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And so on. So Psalm 22 is a psalm that describes the real suffering of a real saint, but it also describes in very graphic detail exactly what's going to happen a thousand years later. It's amazing. So Jesus in every way in his sufferings is fulfilling the prophet's and fulfilling the Psalms. Fourthly, He endured many scorners for us. You'll notice there are three sets of them here. You have the passers-by who say, come down from the cross and save yourself. Isn't that ironic? The very reason He doesn't come down from the cross is to save us. If He had taken the temptation, which was the temptation of the devil, He would not have saved us. But he stayed on that cross precisely so that those passersby would have an atonement available for them. Secondly, the clergy. The clergy are mocking him. And they say he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. The clergy are saying that they have to see the miracle right there in front of their eyes before they can accept anything that Jesus has been saying for three years in public. The clergy are not trusting that God works miracles. The clergy are not trusting that God finally is going to save His people with the Messiah. The clergy. How does such a thing happen? Well, I've heard clergy say, you ask them why they go into their business. Well, I love to help people. Well, that's good. love to help people too. Psychologists love to help people. Social workers love to help people. Doctors love to help people. There are lots of people who like to help people. But, gentlemen, if any of you are thinking about going to the clergy and you want to go in because you just basically want to help people, then go into social service, into medical practice, or law office, or into business. You can help a lot of people in business. Don't go into the pastoral ministry. If you're going to go into the clergy, go in because you want to proclaim and demonstrate some good news that Jesus Christ literally died on a cross for sinners. Jesus Christ was literally raised from the grave so that others may literally be raised as well. And if you want to go proclaim that message and teach others how to proclaim it, then welcome to the clergy. But if you don't want to believe miracles and you only want to believe what's set in front of your face, and you just want to help people, you don't want to be bothered with the miraculous, then don't go into this business. May God build a wall 30 feet high, 20 feet deep, that you can never get over, under, or around to get into the clergy. Because that's the kind of clergy it produces. That when the atonement is being accomplished right in front of their faces, they don't know what's happening. And there are clergy today, and the atonement, has been spread abroad in the pages of the Bible right in front of their faces and they have not a clue what the atonement is all about and what the death of Jesus is supposed to accomplish. So don't go into the business in the first place if you don't go in believing in miraculous, saving love of God because you end up being a denial of the very thing you think you're promoting. You are not, therefore, helping people very much at all. You're leading to their destruction. So don't misuse the office that's meant to help people get to heaven safely so that you can feel better about yourself because you're helping them in some way in your mind, but absolutely in the long run, undermining their eternal welfare. That's what the clergy did here. Thirdly, the condemned thieves. They're being crucified because, frankly, they got caught. And because, frankly, they probably deserved it in some way, Uh, the word thief or robber can also be translated insurrectionist. And most scholars think that's exactly what they were. In fact, the word used for them here is a word that Josephus used for the zealots who were insurrectionists. So it's likely that these were terrorists, if you will, who were seeking to undermine the Roman authority through terrorism. And they got caught. And they're being hung on a tree. And you can imagine that at that time in the world, uh, in that part of the world, that was the way you deal with someone who's an insurrectionist terrorist. You hang him on a tree. Let him suffer. Let everybody see it. And that's the company in which Jesus was crucified as a terrorist, as an insurrectionist. And he had a sign over his head, Jesus, King of the Jews the Jewish leaders objected because they certainly didn't consider him their king. But Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. And that was common practice so that everybody would know, hey, if you claim to be a king in this part of the world under the Roman Empire, you're going to end up looking like this guy on this tree. That was the reason that sign was put up there in the first place. But Jesus was, by those insurrectionists, he was also insulted. He took insults from the low of the low. And from the high of the high. Everybody was insulting Jesus from high to low. But isn't it wonderful that out of all that evil, we find some people coming to Christ, including one of these thieves. It's not recorded here, but, but uh, Luke uh, does record it. Today you will be with me in paradise. And so one of them even repents in his last, with his last breath. Now it's interesting as we come to a close of our brief study here on this crucifixion, that we, if we think about the Muslim perspective on this, the Muslims would say that Jesus only appeared to be crucified. He wasn't actually crucified. Somebody else was crucified, not Jesus. They got confused, and somebody else ended up on that cross, but not Jesus, the prophet, because God would never treat his prophets that way. They believe that he ascended into heaven, just like Muhammad, they say, ascended into heaven. Uh, they say, well, would Jesus ascend into heaven too? Because he was a prophet of God. But he would never be crucified. God would never deal with his prophets that way. Oh, really? (laughs) Jesus said all the prophets got dealt with that way. Isn't it interesting that if you take a religion of good works so that good people have good things happen to them, that's the formula, then obviously with good prophets they couldn't ever be treated this way, so it couldn't possibly have happened. And so you see the two entirely different religions in different approaches to God altogether and different views of who God is. God is holy. We are sinners. We're condemned already. We need salvation. God has to do something far beyond just send us a good prophet. What a good prophet does is tell us we're going to hell a little faster than we were in the first place. That's all that a good prophet will do for us. Just tell us what kind of bad shape we're in. But a Savior comes down, tells us we're in bad shape, and then takes the punishment for it and tells us then we're going to go to heaven. That's what Jesus accomplished because we acknowledge our sin, our need of Him. So you can see the difference between a religion of good works where these kinds of things couldn't possibly happen to good people and a religion for sinners, which is exactly what Christianity is, uniquely what Christianity is. Augustus Toplady says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless flee to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. So without your help, O Lord, I die. I go to hell. I'm condemned. Why? Because I deserve it. Because what He got, I deserve. You know, in the mid south, uh, I just asked you this morning, "How was your week?" Better than I deserve. You said, didn't you? We always say that. And I said, "What I say to you, you better believe it." (laughs) We say that in the mid south all the time. It's almost like a hello. You know. The big question for us is, do you really believe it? And if you do, you really desperately need a Savior. And once you find Him, your whole life's ambition is simply to live for Him. You know you've not only been created by Him, but now you've been bought by Him on the cross. And He owns you. And you're happy about it. And you give give yourself to Him body and soul. That's what it means. So what? The bottom line here is He was cursed for us. Because that's what it means to be hung on a tree, says Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. Cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. Galatians 3.13 quotes that text. And so Jesus was hung on a tree theologically and prophetically to fulfill the curse that was due us. So that's the reason the crucifixion, the historical crucifixion is so important for us because he was... Physically, really, in time and space, the object of God's wrath and really took the curse for us. If you look in the Bible, you'll find five or six linguistic fields to describe what happened in the atonement. You'll find marketplace language. Uh, we were ransomed. That is, we were bought back. Uh, you'll find uh, sacrificial language. He was our sacrifice. And you'll find... Uh, battlefield language uh, he was our warrior that conquered the enemy you'll find all those kinds of languages in the atonement language in the bible but you'll notice about all of them that at the heart of them is the idea of substitution we were bought back because he paid the price he, he paid for us we are set free because he was sacrificed in our place We are conquerors because he took our place and took on the fight himself and defeated our enemies. All of these involve substitution. So at the crucifixion, what you have is someone who stood in our place, who is nailed in our place on the cross. So that the wrath of God comes down upon him instead upon us. That's the meaning of the atonement. That's the so what. And that is the reason we can say, you know, I'm not good enough. I can't be good enough. Never will be good enough. Don't have to be good enough. Because there was one who was good enough, whose sacrifice was accepted by the Father on the cross of Calvary. And therefore, we are admitted to heaven. Then notice thirdly, Jesus died for us. Let's read this text, verses 33 through 41. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed Him and cared for His needs. Many other women who had come up with Him to Jerusalem were also there. Notice, first of all, He experienced the darkness of death for us. For three hours, darkness came over the earth in the middle of the day from noon till three o'clock. It was like night or like dusk anyway. And you'll see that at the plague in Egypt, before the oldest son was taken by the death angel, they had three days of darkness in Exodus 10. You'll find also in Amos 8 a prophecy that the darkness will come in the day of judgment. And so, once again, a fulfillment of prophecy here and a fulfillment of what it means for us to experience the Exodus and to be set free. That judgment's going to come on the firstborn. Judgment is going to come on the one and only Son, And then we are going to experience the exodus and freedom and liberation. That's the meaning of the darkness. He was forsaken of God for us. And we saw this. And We could take our whole hour and just talk about this one phrase of the Lord Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the answer is so that you wouldn't be forsaken. That's why he was forsaken. So that you wouldn't be. So he was forsaken for us. He was misunderstood for us. Listen, he's calling Elijah, they said. Hey, great. Really smart. Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how often are you misinterpreted? When you have a perspective on something because of your Christian worldview, when you explain why you're so glad in the midst of your sufferings and people don't get it, when you explain why life has meaning because of what Jesus Christ has done for us and people think you're a fruitcake, what... You are misunderstood completely. You always will be until the people around you are completely converted, which they will be that on the day that Jesus Christ returns and takes us to heaven, and you will finally be completely understood. But you will not be understood until then. Well, guess what? Your Savior wasn't understood either, and he understands he understands completely what you're going through. And you are to take delight. You are to take delight. Not in your fumbling words and lack of clarity in proclaiming the gospel, but you're to take the light that when the gospel is declared, some people don't understand. Why are you to take the light? Not because they're of their misfortune, but you're to take the light because you're identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ. So He was misunderstood for us. He won access to the Father for us. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I might also say here, most scholars would suggest that the meaning of the tearing of the curtain, uh, the temple curtain, is not just that we have access to the Holy of Holies. That, of course, is clear. But also because it is the final judgment on the Temple of Israel. It's the final judgment on Judaism as we know it. Rabbinical Judaism was judged. He said it was judged in Mark chapter 13. And here, physically, the Holy of Holies has been completely uh, desecrated. It's over. Judaism does not show us the way to God anymore. He says it's over. Now it's going to be through the resurrected Jesus Christ, the outpouring of the Spirit, and the Word of the Apostles, to which the early church absolutely devoted themselves. The Word of the Apostles. He conquered the world for us. Surely this man was the Son of God. Here is a Roman soldier committed to Caesar alone as the Son of God. And he says he doesn't understand, of course, Trinitarian theology. Is a Roman soldier who's not been taught. He probably is saying, there is a great man. It's probably what he's saying by this language. But if anybody had heard him say it, his life would be in danger. And here's what Mark is saying to the Roman Christians. Let me tell you something. Even the Roman soldiers who are oppressing you, there are some of them who are going to turn to Christ. They get it. Here was a Roman soldier at the crucifixion itself who could not help himself but say, "Surely this man was the son of God. So it is a gospel that is to go to all the world and all types of people. He conquered the world for us. And sixthly, he was forsaken of his brothers for us. Sometimes you've been forsaken by your brothers. If you've been in the church for long, I guarantee you've been forsaken by your brothers from time to time. Because we tend to do that. We're all sinners. And they were witnesses uh, of it. That he was forsaken of his brothers for us. There were women there who were the witnesses, but the men had gone. So What? First of all, He sympathizes with us in our dying. You say, Wilson, sometimes I feel like I'm dying. Well, good. That's exactly what you're doing. You are dying. <laughs> you know, so you're in touch with it. Great. It's not a real good feeling. Yeah, the older you get, every decade you go through, you have some new experiences which remind you that this is winding down. It's good to be reminded. Let me tell you something. Jesus knows exactly how you feel. He just watched, he watched his own life wind down right in front of his very eyes. And he understands. He sympathizes. He cares for you. He's actually done something about it. Uh, the second, so what? He destroyed the power of death. That's what he did about it. He destroyed the power of death. It has no power over you anymore. You put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are going to die. But that death has no power over you. Because guess what? You're coming back. If Jesus Christ comes back in three days, so are you. So you have the veil of death to go through. So did He. But for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross and scorned the shame. He knew where He was going. He knew that He was triumphant, even in the midst of His own suffering and agony. And I I know that none of us will have a death as painful as that of Jesus Christ. But in His painful death, He was also triumphant because He knew where He was going. He was also glad because He knew He had delivered you from the fear of death in His own death. That's the reason He came was to to destroy the power of death, the power of death in your life. Don't let it rule over you. It shouldn't any longer. We have to face it. We're tempted to be afraid. Of course we are. We're not meant to die. We're meant to live, and that's the reason we're going to. We're coming right out of that grave. and It's going to be a glorious moment. That'll be the final Amen Bible study right there, won't it? Hey, guys! Everybody up (laughs) early in the morning. All right. The third thing He did for us, the so what, is... He made us a kingdom of priests. He gave us access to the father through his death. Now, what we're going to do uh, next week is we're going to start with uh, chapter 15, verse 42 in the burial, because actually the burial ties in nicely with the resurrection. So we'll just pick up right there and we'll deal with that next week. You can see what difference the resurrection the crucifixion makes the historical bodily crucifixion of our savior interpreted by the apostles. It's not only something that happened, but it's something whose meaning is given to us by revelation. Otherwise, we're just left to speculate about what it means for a dead Jew to die on a tree. But here we're told exactly what that means for us. We are delivered from the power of death. And I'll close with this there are three things that were accomplished for us on that cross. Number one, the character of God was revealed, His holiness and His love. Secondly, The elect of God, the people that He chose for His own pleasure, folks like you and me, we were redeemed. We were saved by that cross. And thirdly, we were delivered from our enemies at that cross. So He revealed the character of God. He redeemed His people and He routed our enemies. He destroyed them. They all know it. And that's the reason all of our enemies are really ticked off about now. Because they know that that cross has destroyed the power of death and has ultimately destroyed the power of sin and has destroyed the power of evil. And they know that by that cross, the greatest triumph in the history of the world was accomplished. Glory be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ as our mighty captain, the Lord of hosts, and our suffering Savior, who has delivered us from the grips of death and sin. And we now, O oh Lord, as your sons, eagerly look forward. seeing that blessed face of Jesus Christ now no longer dripping with blood and tears and sweat but glorified and radiant as the sun in the heavens. And we look forward to bowing down before your majesty one of these days very soon when you deliver us too from the grip of death in this world. Lord, we go out from this place as grateful men. Help us to serve you with the cross ever set before us. For we pray in that blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you.